You are what you eat. You are what you eat. The phrase is often used to stress the importance of eating healthy to, to make us fit and, and strong. In recent years especially, it seems a lot of emphasis has been given to diets, to what we intake. Countless studies have been conducted warning us of the dangers of some foods and the benefits of others. That is, what we put in our bodies can either hurt or help us. It's led to all kinds of phases and all kinds of crazes. A whole 30 and keto, Atkins and South Beach diets, and all kinds of focuses from organic eating to lean eating to clean eating to green eating. It's all intended to, to make you mindful of your meals and mindful of what foods can do for you. Well, friends, the Bible also talks about food. It also places an emphasis on what you eat. The scriptures put before us a primacy of having a healthy gospel diet. And they specifically instruct us to mindfully partake of a certain specific meal that fills us with the gospel and fuels us for gospel work and worship. That's what we'll consider this morning as we work through Acts chapter 2 and continue our study looking at some of the marks of a biblical church. We've noted in previous weeks the church's devotion to sitting under God's word. The church's devotion to, to fellowshipping together in corporate worship and in each other's homes. And today we come to a third mark of the church. Devotion to the breaking of bread. If you have your Bibles, you turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 42 through 47 over the last few weeks. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs... You can find it on page 911, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. We read, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number. Day by day, those who were being saved. Though Daniel back there want to have a little competition, huh? <laughs> uh, now, as we get started here, we want to do some exegetical work together. All right. That word exegesis is just kind of a big 50 cent word that simply means to draw out from the text. So, friends, whether you're a member of this church or visiting in between churches looking for a new church, the most important thing you want to make sure of from any church is that the teaching that's coming 
out of the pulpit is teaching that's coming from the Bible. That the ideas are not man's ideas, not some other book's ideas, not some denomination's ideas, but God's ideas in his word. We want our theology to spring from the Bible. So friends, we aim to be a church where, where we want what we believe about the gospel, why we need to be saved, how God saved us, how, what we believe about the church and how the church should be structured is not simply put down on the scriptures, laid upon the scriptures, but brought out from God's word. Amen. Right? We, we don't want it to come from past experiences, from people simply telling us. We want all those things to come from looking at the Bible and seeing what the Bible says. So in the first place here, we want to look at this idea of the breaking of bread. What do we mean by the breaking of bread and why is it so important? First, let's look carefully at, at the text in front of us in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. You'll notice here that there are two instances where the idea of breaking of bread is used. In verse 42, there's this idea of the breaking of bread that's used in connection with seemingly liturgical, formal forms of corporate worship, sitting under the apostles' teaching, fellowshipping together in the temple, the breaking of bread and prayers, four activities that are done together as a local church. And then if you drop down some, you see there's another usage of the breaking of bread in verse 46. There it seems to be more informal in people's homes. So we see these two instances and uses of the breaking of bread, one seemingly more formal, the other seemingly less formal, more informal. And I think the more formal term of the breaking of bread in verse 42 is referring to the Lord's Supper. Again, we don't want to just say that. We want that to come from the text, from the Bible. So, so it's not simply that Omar thinks that that's so. Let's see what the Bible says. Does the Bible back this idea? So the question we want to ask is, does the Bible have other instances where the concept of breaking of bread refers specifically to the Lord's Supper. I think it does. And so we're going to do a little bit of Bible flipping for a little bit. All right. right. And so you have a Bible in front of you or a phone in front of you. Right? Probably easy if you just tap it. Right. Either one. Let's look through the Bible. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he says in verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Those terms there, participating in the blood and body of Christ, are referring to the Lord's Supper, are referring to the acts of drinking the cup of wine that that represents Christ's blood and eating the bread that represents Christ's body. And that word that Paul uses here in verse 16, participation, is the same Greek word that we looked at last week, koinonia. The same word we studied in Acts 2.42 that, that means fellowship or communion or participation in something together. It's also why the Lord's Supper is also known as communion. Communion comes from this passage, this idea of participating together as a church in eating the bread and drinking the cup. But again, notice how Paul refers to it as breaking of the bread. Turn one chapter over to, to 1 
to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And notice there that Paul talks even more explicitly about the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34, the Lord's Supper is the topic. It's the, the longest explanation of the Lord's Supper in the Bible. Paul communicates this practice of the Lord's Supper as, as passed down to him from the Lord Jesus. Look down specifically at verses 23 to 24. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The breaking of bread there is clearly talking about the Lord's Supper. And friends, we get that term that we've been using so far, the Lord's Supper from this passage in First Corinthians chapter 11. If you look up to, to verse 20 in 1 Corinthians 11, you see Paul refer to this whole meal that the church partakes as the Lord's Supper. So even the terms we use don't simply come from tradition. They come from the Bible. Amen. And then if you turn back to the book of Acts, at this time, turn back to Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Luke, the writer, says in verse 7, that on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, churches meet on the first day of the week for corporate worship. The day is highlighted, I think, to highlight the formality of this breaking of the bread together. It's not simply a potluck meal this year, but a celebration of the Lord's Supper together as a church. Churches devote themselves to the breaking of bread. That might seem strange to you. An emphasis, a devotion, that's a strong word, a devotion to the Lord's Supper as a church. And a whole sermon on the Lord's Supper? Well, yes, hopefully by the end of this sermon, we will see the importance of what the Lord's Supper is and what the Lord's Supper does. So, so here's what I think is the main idea of this emphasis on a church devoting itself to the breaking of bread, to the Lord's Supper. And so the main idea of the sermon. True churches regularly rehearse the gospel and reaffirm their commitment to Christ and to one another. True churches regularly rehearse the gospel and reaffirm their commitment to Christ and to one another. And the two halves of that main idea will serve as the kind of two points of the sermon. So point number one, a true church regularly rehearses the gospel. And number two, a true church reaffirms their commitment to Christ and to one another. Right? Uh, the first one will be the longest point, so don't trip out. And it's going over, and you're like, oh my gosh, what's number two going to be? Right? First point will be the longest. Number one, a true church regularly rehearses the gospel. As we start off there, let's start with what might seem most basic, most common, but often goes unstated. What do we mean by the gospel? The gospel is the good news of what God has done to save sinners. It tells the story of God, the ruler, of man, the rebeller, 
of Christ the Redeemer and of eternal life as our reward. The gospel begins with God the ruler. God rules the world. He rules the world because he created the world. He made everything in his image. This holy, just, loving, majestic God created all things to give praise to him, including his people. He made human beings. He made you and me to reflect his glory, to reflect his image to all his creation, to show what God was like. But but man rebelled against God and rejected his rule. Adam and Eve, the first people, did not want to live under God's rule, but over it. They did not want to submit to God, but to separate themselves from him. Uh, they sinned by seeking to live their own way apart from God. And their sin spread like a curse to all people, to all men and women, including us today. Born slaves to sin. Born under sin, born under judgment, born wanting to live our own way without God. And so occurring or taking God's wrath as a punishment for our sins. We want to live a, a life apart from the Lord. But we realize that life apart from the Lord is not life at all. It only brings death. It brings eternal death and eternal damnation and wrath from God's hand in a real place called hell. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, even when we were reveling in our rebellion, he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us. Jesus, the eternal son of God, took on flesh and came to earth to live for us. He lived the perfect, obedient life, willfully and joyfully submitting his life to God the Father for us. He lived for us. And then he laid down that life. And he died the gruesome death that you and I deserve to die. He took on all the sins of those who had trusted in him. And he died in our place for our sins. He died for us and was buried. But the Bible tells us that after three days, he rose up from the grave, conquering sin and Satan and death and showing that his payment was sufficient yes. for all our sins. That it truly, as we just sang, paid it all. Yeah. He ascended into heaven and now he commands all people everywhere mm. to turn from our sins. To put our trust in him with the promise of eternal life yeah. is our reward. Mm. If we repent and believe. Yeah. Friends, that's the gospel we preach here every Sunday. That's the good news that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 earlier. Peter proclaimed, men of Israel, this Jesus whom you crucified with your sins, God raised up. Yeah. He is resurrected and exalted at the right hand of God. And saying, it's, the, it's, saying the, it's the still the same gospel. It hasn't changed in, in 2,000 years. It's the same gospel that saved 3,000 folks in the first century. It's the same gospel that saved you and me. It's the same gospel that will save you now. If you turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus, if you believe in the gospel, it's the same gospel we mean to continue to proclaim every single week. We proclaim it not simply with our words. We proclaim it with a scene. The gospel is so powerful. What Jesus Christ has done so glorious that God said it needs to be expressed in more than simply what people say. All right. We need some scenes. 
And so the Lord in his wisdom has set Christ's work before us and engaged all our senses in considering him. And so the gospel must be spoken, engaging our auditory senses so that we can hear it. But, but not just that. God said, give them something to touch, to handle in their hands and give them something to see, to study and observe. Give them something to taste. Yes, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is something of a visible sermon. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, the Apostle Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper preaches about what the Lord has done to save to redeem his people. It reminds us of another meal that preceded it, that had a similar purpose. Sabrell read it for us earlier in Exodus chapter 12. The people of Israel set as slaves in Egypt. And on the night before the Lord would act to save them, to redeem them, he instituted a meal, the Passover meal. He instructed them to kill a lamb without blemish and to spread its blood over the doorposts so that when the Lord passed through the land and passed through the houses of Israel, of of, of Egypt in judgment, he would pass over that specific house and spare the people. And inside the house, they were to eat that lamb, partake of it together as a family. It wasn't simply to be a one time meal, but but one continually celebrated by the people of Israel. And explained every time they observed it. So that when children in successive generations asked, why do you keep this meal? Why do you observe this feast? They were to say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared us. The meal was to remember and rejoice in God's redemption. Fast forward 1,500 years. The situation is worse. All humanity set as slaves to sin. And on the night before the Lord would act to save them, to redeem them, he instituted a meal. Actually, he, he takes the Passover meal and he transforms it into a new meal with new significance. All right. And listen to what we read in, in Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 14. Luke 22:14. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. During this Passover meal, Jesus took the 
the common elements of bread and wine and gave them new meaning. Just as a Passover meal was a reminder to God's people of his redeeming them from slavery in Egypt. So in the same way, this meal is meant to bring remembrance of a greater redemption. What Jesus did to save us all from our sins. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus says. Tell folks what these things mean. The bread that we eat. We don't eat it because we love carbs. We eat it because we love God. And we love God because he first loved us. But how did he love us? Well, he, he took a body. That's what the bread represents, the, the body of Christ. The eternal son of God abased himself and became flesh. The immortal one took on mortality. The timeless one entered into time. The slumberless one became susceptible to fatigue. Though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, which was already despicable enough. He further humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a deplorable cross where his body was broken down for us. No being has ever stooped so low. Because no being has ever set so high and no being has ever loved so deep. Look at the bread and consider the body that our Lord took on and laid down for us. And look at the cup filled with wine in Jesus' day and Welch's grape in ours. It's all right. Both of them come from the fruit of the vine. Both of them crushed for our consumption. Both of them red because they represent the blood that Jesus shed for us. It it was the blood of a spotless land that was shed and spread over the doorposts of the Israelites that spared them from God's judgment. It was the subsequent blood shed from many animal sacrifices offered over many years under the old covenant that temporarily atoned for the people's sins and shielded them from God's wrath. But it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so the perfect lamb of God, Jesus Christ, came and shed his blood for us on the cross. The blood that inaugurated a new covenant. Just as the old covenant at Sinai was was instituted, was inaugurated with the sprinkling of blood. So the new covenant was inaugurated with the shedding of blood. The new covenant that Jeremiah 31 talks about, where God would write his law, not on stone tablets, but on people's hearts. The new covenant where where God's people would all truly know him. The new covenant where God promises in Jeremiah 31, 34, that he would fully and finally forgive all our iniquities and remember our sins no more. Pick up the cup. And contemplate the cross of Christ where his blood was spilled out to save us. The blood that blots out the record of all our wrongs. Oh, we really committed them. They're there. There's a long list of illicit desires 
of shameful actions, of evil intentions. But the blood of Christ covers them all. The blood that buries us, hides us behind Christ's work. So that when God passes through in judgment, and friends, God is coming in judgment. There will be a day when we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And when God examines us, and all we have to show is our good works, we'll find they weren't good enough. When God examines us, and all we have to show is our righteous deeds, we'll see that they're as righteous as filthy rags. When God examines us, and all he sees is us representing ourselves, we are in trouble. Because we have all sinned, and the penalty of sin is certain eternal death. But just as he promised the Passover, God in his judgment says, but when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Drink that cup fully, saints. Remembering that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath and shed his blood for us. Eat that bread fully. Knowing that Jesus Christ ate all the charges for us and had his body broken in our place. As often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. A true churches regularly rehearse the gospel through celebrating the Lord's Supper. And we need to regularly rehearse it because we often forget it. Some of us have come this morning with low affections for Jesus, low evaluations of him here, but not really wanting to worship. Let the bread and the cup convince you of Christ's worthiness, of his majesty and of his mercy and of his love for you. Some of us have have come cast down, condemned by the weight of our sins. The sins we hate, we keep on harboring. The temptations we try to fight, we, we keep giving into. And we often feel defeated and, and without hope. Well, let the bread and the cup proclaim a, a bigger message, a louder message than the mess that our flesh and the devil keep spewing out. Yes. Look at the bread and the cup and what they represent. And listen to them reminding you of the victory that Christ accomplished for you and me on the cross. Hear the cup and the bread shouting out that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can you be condemned? Christ has already been condemned in your place. There is no double condemnation. Some of us have come this morning perhaps rejecting Christ in unbelief. You've heard many, many sermons and yet you still don't believe. My friends, let the bread and the cup wake you up this morning. See God's patient and merciful pursuit of you, giving you a visible as well as an audible sermon to turn your heart this morning. And know what your continued rejection of Jesus, rejection of the the bread and the wine today are saying. To hell with the blood and body of Christ. I don't need it. I don't want it. To which the almighty God will respond to hell with you. Friends, let's run to Christ today. 
in repentance and in faith. That's what we regularly rehearse the gospel for, to stir up and to strengthen our faith. That's what true churches do. The first church and every church thereafter rehearses the gospel by receiving the bread and the cup. There's another purpose behind taking the bread and the cup together. Yes, we rehearse the gospel, but we also reaffirm our commitment to Christ and to one another. Point number two, true churches reaffirm their commitment to Christ and to one another. That's to say it's possible to rehearse the gospel, to to talk about what Christ has done, to, to understand that it's portrayed through the Lord's Supper, and yet not to truly commit to Christ yourself. But that's what the Lord's Supper is meaning to guard against. It's to be partaken of only by those who are presently trusting in Christ. Trusting in his work on their behalf who are still believing in Jesus. It's a reaffirmation of our commitment to Christ. And there's already an initial affirmation that all believers make when we initially put our trust in Jesus. An initial, initial affirmation that we've turned from our sins and trusted in Jesus for salvation. And that too is through a visible sign. Amen. Through the sign of baptism. So Jesus is given two visible signs, visible symbols to mark off his people, the church, from the world, right? These two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper that Jesus commanded churches to practice. Baptism is the entrance way. It doesn't make you saved, but it is the sign to demonstrate that you are saved. It's where your faith goes public, where you declare to the world, oh, no, 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 now I'm on team Jesus. Baptism is a one-time act where you publicly profess faith in Christ and the community of faith, the local church, affirms that faith and you join the church. I mean, that's what we see in in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, after Peter preaches, the people are convicted of sin and ask, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. Baptism is so tied to faith, to to belief that the two are used interchangeably. You can say repent and believe or repent and be baptized. And then in Acts chapter 241, those who believed were baptized. And about 3,000 people were added to the church. All these people made this initial confession, this initial affirmation of committing to Jesus and to one another as the church. And they continue to affirm that commitment, not through baptism again and again and again and again, but by this continual meal of the Lord's Supper, by devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. Whereas baptism is a one time event where we declare I'm with Jesus. The Lord's Supper is a continual observance where we regularly reaffirm that commitment. Yep. Still with Jesus. Still trusting him, still clinging to him after a few months or a few years or a few decades, after many trials, after many discouragements, after some diseases, after seeing some deaths, after seeing some departures from the faith. I'm still with Jesus. Still pass me that cup and give me that bread. I still believe that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me and that he's with me now. Again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
that drinking this cup and eating this bread is a participation in the body and blood of Christ. It's a communing with him. Friends, against what some people say, the bread and the wine don't magically transform into Jesus's body. Right. It's not the real body and real blood of Jesus that, that, that that's going to turn into right here in this little place in Temple Hills today. But Jesus is in a special way spiritually present when we take the cup and the bread together. Yeah. I mean, he said in his word where two or three are gathered together in his name as a church. There I will be also. It is Jesus inviting us to the table to eat with him. And it's us repeatedly pulling up to the table for the family meal, All right. expressing that we're still members of the family, yeah. that we have not renounced the family name of the father, son and spirit into which we were baptized. Oh, and friends, notice I keep saying we yes. throughout. That's because the Lord's Supper is communal. It's not something that individual believers like you and me decide to take in our own homes. Mm. I mean, you go back this afternoon and read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Notice how often Paul talks about the Lord's Supper by saying, when you come together, mm. when you come together as a church to observe this meal. This meal is meant to be observed by local churches when they come together as churches. It's not for small groups or Bible study fellowships. As sweet as it might be, as good as it might look, it's not for husbands and wives and their guests to observe at weddings. It's for local churches because it's local churches together that affirm and reaffirm their commitment to Jesus. Yes, you must personally commit to Jesus. But part of that commitment is committing to follow Christ with a group of other believers in a local church as they commit to helping you follow him Amen. and as you commit to helping them follow the Lord. The commitment to Jesus is always a commitment to Jesus' people, a commitment to submit your life to them, for, for, for them to watch over your faith yeah. and a commitment for you to care for and watch over them. You see, it's easy to deceive ourselves into thinking, I'm with Jesus, I'm committed to Christ. But one of the first telltale signs is, are you committed to Jesus' people? One of the things the Lord's Supper is meaning to dismantle is a Christianity divorced from the church. Now, you've seen it. People claim to be Christians and their kind of claim to fame, their claim to Christ is because they've been baptized at some point. They've had that one time marker. But we need to ask, where's the follow up continual proof? That you're still following Jesus. They say, I've been baptized, but they don't regularly attend or haven't joined a church. There's that one time declaration is often only valid if followed up by a continual showing, knowing that you follow Jesus. And that continued commitment is declared, is demonstrated by taking the Lord's Supper together. I mean, it's, it's these particular brothers and sisters in the church who are able to, in a way, uh, put a stamp of approval on your profession of faith as they examine your lives and say, yes, he or she is still one of us. Yeah. Brother or sister in Christ, let's happily eat the family meal together. 
It's also these brothers and sisters in the local church who've been authorized by God to examine our faith and say, no, we do not think that he or she is still one of us. There's too many gaps between their profession and their practice, between their belief, seeming belief, and actually what they live, how they live. They're no longer welcome at this table with us. Friends, that's, that's what a church does in the final step of church discipline, of excommunication. Friends, excommunication does not mean cutting off communication with a professing believer who's in unrepentant sin. It does not mean shunning them. It does not mean disallowing them to come to church. I mean, the church is the only place that they'll hear and see the gospel they truly need to repent. Excommunication means excluding someone from communion. That's where the word comes from. Excommunication is excluding from communion, excluding someone from participating in the Lord's Supper. Why? Because the Lord's Supper is for the Lord's people who demonstrate that they've turned from their sin and trusted in Christ and are living for him and with his people. The Lord's Supper marks off those who, who are genuine followers of Christ. It marks off the membership of a local church. One author says the Lord's Supper makes the church visible. It's, it's these people sharing fellowship with Christ and each other who are the church. It's these people who are regularly admitted to the Lord's table who are in the church. To be excluded from the Lord's Supper is to be put out of the church. Putting someone out the church isn't physically picking them up and moving the chair up. It's not simply removing their name from the role, right? It is the act of saying, we don't think you're a brother or sister in Christ and don't have a place at the table with Christ's people. That's serious. And that's what lo the Lord has given local churches the, the authority to do. We don't do that flippantly, right? We don't do that rashly. But when we do that, and we, if you are in danger of that, that is a serious thing. I hope you see that something of the the cumulative significance of taking this meal together. It says we are his and it obligates us to one another to love one another. Sometimes love has to say hard things, has to do hard things like discipline us. But, but if the Lord disciplines the one he loves, then even when a church has to practice church discipline, it should be seen as an act of love. We love you enough not to let you keep on calling yourself a Christian and partaking of the Christian meal, even though your actions consistently say you want no part of Jesus and no part of his people. But more than often, love affirms and encourages. Love says, brother, sister, we've had some struggles. We've endured some doubts and temptations, but praise God that he's kept us. And that we're still laboring together in love. The cross of Christ unites us to him and to one another. It creates an unbreakable bond of love. And saints, we should work hard not to let anything threaten to break that bond of love. Or to cool that love. We might have differences in ethnicity. And differences in experiences in our different ethnic groups. But we're united together in Christ. Yes. 
let's eat the bread together as a mark of that unity. We might have differences in politics, perhaps some deep divides on some real significant issues, but we're united together in Christ. Let's drink the cup together as a mark of that unity. We might have some disagreements and discords among us. You live long enough together as a church and there will be some conflicts. Some of us have had those here over the last few years, right? But praise God, we've also seen those conflicts be conquered by the blood of Christ. Praise God that even though there might be some conflicts and some confrontations, that we're united together in Christ. And so if there's any open conflicts that remain, let's seek to reconcile even now and to forgive one another in him. And then let's eat the bread and drink the cup together as a mark of that unity, reaffirming our commitment to Christ and our commitment to one another. Friends, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper shortly, reflect on all that it shows, all that it says, all that it means for us as a church. It presents to us the gospel, what Christ has done to save us sinners, and it binds us together as saved sinners to help each other to heaven. Where again, we'll share a meal together. But this time in the physical presence of Jesus, as the bread of life, life who was broken for us and the lamb of God whose blood was shed for us prepares a table for us. And he sits with us at a heavenly feast and where we enjoy fellowship with him and with one another forever. This meal this morning is a foretaste of that eternal meal. So celebrate and enjoy now. Enjoy him now and enjoy one another now in light of them. Look at the supper and celebrate. Live like God's people and celebrate as we look forward to that eternal day. Ask Christ's people in his presence where we will eat and drink with the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that shows us how majestic Jesus Christ is, how marvelous his work for us is is and has been on the cross, how deeply we need Jesus, how marvelous Christ's shedding of blood and breaking of his body has been to satisfy your wrath. Lord, we pray that as we observe the table shortly, Lord, that we would be moved, Lord, to see our sins as paid for, to see Christ's death as sufficient, Lord, to see our need to repent of any lingering sins, knowing that it's only the blood of Christ that that cures them. Help us, we pray, Lord, to turn from our sins and to remember Jesus Christ. Pray this in his name. Amen.